Never fear, I'm back. In case you hadn't noticed, I've had a couple of weeks off on holiday, but I'm here to stop you getting tempted by other podcasts. I've brushed the sand out of my hair, and I'm back to look after you. If you're new to this podcast, well, hello. And even if you're not, why not pop over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find hundreds of hours of content, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and more importantly, make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we'll be talking about that tricky job hunting process. And I'm sure we've all got some horror stories from some points in our career. We'll talk to my guest about treating your career like a product, building out your MVP portfolio, and actually reading the job descriptions for a change and optimizing your resume to stand out from the crowd. If you want to find out the biggest myth of product job hunting, and much, much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Sarah Doody. Sarah's a former UX design and research consultant turned company founder. But before all that, she started out selling children's clothes at Oskosh Bagosh. She's now putting the kibosh on ill-fitting resumes and unfashionable portfolios and helping UX professionals dress for success and get the next big job move and get paid what they're worth. Sarah says she hates surface-level UX advice on social media and says we should all treat our careers like products. So I'm off after this to check my CV with all my stakeholders take all their feedback on board, then rewrite it all at the last minute because the VP of sales says so. Hi, Sarah. How are you tonight? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me. And also, that was an awesome intro. I think (laughs) one of my favorites. (laughs) One of your favorites. I'm going to have to have some words after this. I can tell you did a lot of research. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So first things first, you are the founder and CEO of Career Strategy Lab. So What problem does Career Strategy Lab solve for me or for people like me? Right. So Career Strategy Lab solves the problem that a lot of UX and product people are not great at the product of (laughs) themselves. And we're going to get into that. But what that means really tangibly is that they're not great at marketing themselves, selling themselves, and like the product of them, meaning the skills, etc. So we help people learn how to create effective resumes, portfolios, LinkedIn profiles, job search, and also like really own their career and come up with what we call a product roadmap for their career. So you avoid, you know, getting stagnant, etc. There's a little bit of a long answer, but that's what we do. (laughs) I'm still working on the one liner. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. We need to get some marketing people in to do that bit, yeah. but I'm sold. <laughs> yeah, you you know, you, you're very familiar with startup incubators. Yep. And if I had to make a one-liner on the spot right now, it's an incubator for your career. There you go. I'll uh, take my commission at the end of the interview. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but you touched on it there just briefly, and it was one of my key questions, so I'm glad we got it on the table straight away, is like, Obviously, you've got a design background, you've worked in UX, user research, and that's obviously a really fundamental part of product management, uh, kind of that relationship and just how to build great products. Definitely. But it sounds like you're not just talking about UX and product designer type people, but you're also talking about product managers and other people involved in building the product. So that kind of across the product trio. So is that how it is? Like you can basically help anyone across both of those disciplines or could you maybe help other disciplines as well? Like how wide do you go with your brush? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's been an evolution of this business, which is now Career Strategy Lab. This all started 
in 2017 when I was solving a very specific problem of helping people with their portfolios. And I have this product. It still is out there right now. Maybe it won't be someday, but it's called the UX <laughs> Portfolio Formula. And that's very you know specific to UX people. But I quickly realized through feedback from people who bought that program was this should just be called the portfolio formula. So, and you could substitute portfolio for articulate your work and experience. You know, it doesn't have to be a formal portfolio. But yeah, I've had product managers, graphic designers, product owners, I think I said UX writers, researchers, (laughs) all types of people. And some of the feedback is, like this, this does not just have to be UX and product people. So behind the scenes in my business, we are considering the pros and cons of the benefits of niching down versus going wide. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of decisions that need to go into that because it changes <laughs> the business drastically. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And that's one of the things that kind of sprung to my mind as you were talking there is this idea of, well, yes, of course, there are some common features between various different types of job, but also there are going to be different things that they want to call out on their portfolio, different levels of work that they're going to, want to show, different types of work. I've always, for example, thought it's particularly difficult for product managers, especially on, say, B2B apps that aren't publicly available to actually mm-hmm. sort of show a portfolio of, of basically anything. They just have to kind of write something down and hope people believe them. So I guess when it comes to that niching down, do you feel that there's enough generic work that you can do with people that means that you can offer that service at scale? Or do you feel that by sort of zooming out to a wider group of people that you're going to maybe have to get some additional sort of server duties from engineering and server duties from marketing and other types of server duties that can actually come and do some of that stuff and and be that almost consultative expert that people need? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in this moment, I think the answer is what I've created inside Career Strategy Lab is very versatile. And yes, a lot of the examples are like UX designer, Sally, you know, here's an example of her resume and how she writes the bullet points and a good, better, best bullet point. But even if you don't work in user experience, even if you're an accountant, let's say, or like a, I don't know, um, a teacher or something, you could Hopefully, I mean, I don't think it's rocket science to look at an example of someone (laughs) in a different industry and translate that to what you do. And I think why it could work to go wide with all of this is because the feedback we receive from people who've gone through this program is that like, it is so granular that it's almost like Mad Libs, you know, those fill in the blank things. (laughs) So it's really a business decision, but it's definitely translatable to anyone. And I have a few friends or friends of friends that were recently laid off and I was just chatting with them, giving them tips and it worked. I was kind of prototyping, could the advice I give in this program relate to Mike, the security guy? And it was like, yep, it worked. Well, there you go. Serving the security and guard dog industry, (laughs) which is definitely a niche I wasn't expecting to get to in this call. (laughs) But one thing I see on the uh, product management side is that there are people out there that are trying to break into product management, for example, in the first place. And I think that that's traditionally a tricky move simply because there's quite a lot of variability between what 
different people consider product management and also what companies believe it to be. Definitely. But also there's, we'll come to the job specs in a bit, I guess, but there's just, it's this sort of chicken and egg scenario that you get as well with regards to like, you need to have the experience to get in, but you don't get into, you have the experience type thing. So is that something that is common across, for example, product chore, but like design as well? Or do you feel that there's more of a path into UX and design with maybe some hard skills that can get you in and then you learn the rest on the job? Yeah, I mean, I think of product management and I kind of agree with you, you know, just coming straight out of college or some boot camp and getting hired as a product manager, you know, at like Canva or QuickBooks or something, <laughs> that might be a stretch because to your point, I think it is very helpful to have kind of worked in the trenches, for lack of a better word, yeah, and be exposed to how product is done at different types of companies. And maybe you could go be a product manager at a two-person startup or something with your friends, right? But the context of the company you're going to, I think, kind of dictates whether you can just roll in there as a total newbie, or if you might need to climb the ranks, so to speak, to get into that role. Concerning, quote, breaking in, it's not my favorite term, but everyone uses it these days. <laughs> and it's not my favorite term, because I think it's really about the expectation people have. We even see this, you know, with UX roles, right? People have this expectation that if I just get this degree or do this program and make some fake projects, I can get hired at Google for a hundred grand or something. (laughs) And more power to you if you can do that. But, you know, I think it might be a little easier for UX people than product managers because there's more entry points. You know, it doesn't require management and understanding of tons of other areas. So yeah. It's just drawing, right? And coloring in. Oh, yeah, just moving stuff around on the screen like anyone can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, we're going to get some hate mail at this point. But are you optimized then for that? Let's call it breaking in for the time being. Like, is that a really big part of your game? Or are you also looking at people trying to move up through their career ladder, trying to get higher positions, maybe even breaking into leadership? Mm -hmm. Like, where's your sweet spot? Or are they all your sweet spots? So this is a fun question from the perspective of this program is a product. So it started just focused on portfolios, like I said. And in that moment of creating that, I was just thinking, how do I make people stop asking me how to make a portfolio? Because I'm so sick of this question. Like literally, (laughs) if I just make this thing, every email inquiry I get, I can just say, go buy this program. Then that inherently attracted a lot of newbies. And that went on for a few years. And then I personally made a decision, you know, on my career roadmap to get really meta of thinking to myself, I actually don't want to work with newbies for like the next decade or something. (laughs) Nothing against newbies. But oh, it sounds like there's something against newbies. Come on, you can be honest here. You know, I didn't. Well, there's two problems. I didn't like answering the same questions over and over and over and over. Yep. But also, the newbies, they came to me because they wanted to make a portfolio, but they also wanted me to teach them UX. And I was not in the business of making a UX bootcamp, even though, yes, I did. 
helped General Assembly. I made the curriculum for and taught their first program. I myself didn't want to make Sarah's UX boot camp. And so I diversified slowly. And now this program covers not just your portfolio, but many other things. What I have found now that I got out of just portfolio land is probably, and I don't have the exact number on this, but I would say 70% of people that join this program have either been working in UX for like 10 or more years, or they are switching to user experience from another industry, such as teaching, occupational health, psychology, architecture. And that has been a quite a surprise for me because the problems that we face in our career, job search, et cetera, you know, figuring out what you want to do next, those problems don't go away, you know, after working for three years. Yeah. Those problems just get more complex because you have more experience. You're exposed to more areas within whatever you do. And it's almost that problem of too many options and trying to, like we talked about in the, in the beginning, kind of like figure out, do you niche down? Do you go wide? What do you want to do? Um, not to mention whether you're a 20-year-old just getting your first job or you're 50 figuring out your next job. Everyone faces the same problems with resumes, LinkedIn profiles, networking, job search, interviews, et cetera, at least from my experience of doing this with like now thousands of people. Yeah, and I've seen the graphic with all of their salary increases as well. So you're obviously doing good work there. But on that work, I mean, you've touched a little bit on how you started out with this resume or portfolio builder and then some of the work that you've then progressed through. But Obviously, before that, you were practicing or you were a UX practitioner, you're a UX leader, you worked in a number of organizations. And then you, of course, then decided to kind of give up that life and move into this new world of helping other people succeed in their careers. So I guess that is a bit of a pivot. So was there anything that specifically got you to just decide to concentrate on that as an actual career and an actual company of your own, like any pivotal moment? Or was it just a natural progression from some of the work that you were doing? Yeah, it's kind of a combination of both. It was definitely a natural progression. But, you know, looking back on my own career roadmap, around, I would say 2015 or so, I started to dabble in the world of teaching UX. I did a lot of teaching around research and things like that, kind of a little uh, like UX fundamentals, let's say. And at the time I was consulting, you know, I had been running my own consultancy. And I had this moment where I thought there will eventually be a ceiling with this consultancy where I can't likely raise my rates, you know, infinitely. And (laughs) there would be a moment where I needed to decide, do I want to grow an agency or what? How do I, you know, scale this? And I knew I didn't want to build an agency. So I thought to myself, education, especially online education, can scale. Yeah. So it's really a decision, a business decision, and looking and knowing that my opportunity to earn was capped, I felt like. However, when you have digital products, those are very scalable in a very lucrative way. But also, it was not just about finances, it was about lifestyle. And I think honestly, 
lifestyle is really how I make a lot of my decisions in that I remember waking up many mornings and looking at my calendar and just seeing walls of meetings. And (laughs) I hate meetings. And I did not want to have my life look like that specifically because I had this master plan kind of to move away from New York City and move to the mountains where I live now so I can ski all the time. (laughs) So I clearly have been designing my career subconsciously and consciously. So as a financial reason and also free up my calendar so I can live the life I want to live too. Well, there you go. We won't hold the skiing against you as the (laughs) snowboard collective. (laughs) No, I was, and it worked. I was on the slopes 65 days this winter and I'm actually going on a very exciting bucket list trip to Chile to go skiing at the end of August. So I'm like a kid the night before Christmas right now. (laughs) Well, there you go. I'll I'll have what she's having. (laughs) (laughs) Follow me on Instagram for uh, behind the scenes. (laughs) Make sure you wear a helmet. Yes, now, all the time. <laughs> now, I read that you're privately held. You've never taken funding. Yep. Now, that's always refreshing to see in this day and age, all these hustle bros out there and growth at all costs VC crowd. But <laughs> do you feel that being self-funded has ever limited you or has it instead given you some kind of freedom to pursue things the way that you wanted? With this business, I would say I do not regret not seeking out funding or anything. I really value the freedom I have to make decisions and move as fast as I want. And I think that looking at, you know, when this all kind of started from 2017 until now, I have made so many data and just gut decisions that I think probably would have been slowed down if I was accountable to other people. And, you know, I think part of why I feel confident in continuing this way is because, sure, I don't have like a board of directors or VCs to be accountable to. But I've kind of formed my own board of directors with other trusted people. Some kind of are in the online education space, but in different niches. Some, you know, are financial planners, for example, or therapists, but they all are a great sounding board for decisions. And they do remind me of statements I've made in the past and stuff like that. (laughs) So yeah, I think for this business, it would be very limiting. But I'm able to self fund this because the profit margins are quite high. And to be honest, I automate a ton of stuff in the business. (laughs) So I am saving a lot of money on team because my team is focused on doing very strategic things, not manual, repetitive, conveyor belt type things, because I've automated stuff using Zapier and a ton of automations and Airtable to get really nerdy. <laughs> oh, there you go. But just for the record, we should call out that alternative automation and data storage platforms are available. Definitely. Since they're not sponsoring me. Now, I've never applied for a UX role myself, working as I do in product management and formerly engineering. Yep. But product management job descriptions are famously a car crash with unclear, ambiguous requirements, often feeling like, I don't know, hiring managers have basically taken two or three other job specs and just sort of smooshed them all together and put buzzwords on the top and their kind of company logo. So... That's product management, and obviously you're helping to serve those people as well. But is that also something that 
you find with, say, design and UX roles? Or is it a little bit more settled and is there kind of more consistency between the different types of job ads that you have for specifically UX roles? I think it's a problem that is widespread in the product industry in general. And if I had to wager a guess, I think it also expands to many other industries. (laughs) I think we have to think of how job descriptions are written. And a lot of times they're written in a rush Yep. by someone who maybe has not written a job description ever, or, you know, it's been a couple of months or a year or something like that. And so what are they doing to write that job description? They're probably either Googling to find examples, or they're finding other examples from within their company and just kind of like doing a Frankenstein or mashup (laughs) of job descriptions, right? And I think job descriptions often focus on sometimes too granular of responsibilities. And I think it's really helpful, even if you just discuss this internally, you know, think about like the key areas that this person would be involved in. And at least before the job description, discuss actual examples of projects that this person would work on. And I think if you start with examples of in the first six to eight months, what are the real things someone would be working on in our org? That is a lot more valuable than coming up with this person will be responsible for generic things, one, two, three, you know, (laughs) it just helps contextualize it a lot more. And it helps you, I think, have better conversations in the interviews as you're able to say, like, part of this job would be working on this project in the next three months. Like, tell me about something you've done in the past that relates to this. So yeah, yeah. Job descriptions are a mess all over. <laughs> but obviously, you're coaching people to get these jobs. So that calls to mind some of the things that you read online about the different types of people that apply for jobs and how much of the job ad they feel confident applying for a job if they mm. match or don't match. And this is famously something where, for example, women will tend to try to basically only apply for jobs where they meet everything, whereas you back to your tech bro men like they'll be the ones that probably try and apply for the jobs at the mm-hmm. i know 30 percent mark or something like that so i guess if we take the the cliches aside what's your recommendation for when like if you're looking at a job and you say okay well actually i've got like x percent of those things so maybe i should go for it like what is x as i mean i'm sure it's variable but like as right. a kind of kind of finger in the air like if you if you had to sort of have a starting point what what's the starting point for x yeah i mean This is a completely subjective number, but the number I've been saying most recently is about 60%. And yes, one of the questions I receive a lot from, you know, men and women is, I don't think I can apply to this job because I don't meet 100% of those things. And my feedback to them is always like the job description is not a list of every requirement it's really a wish list. (laughs) And I know that's frustrating for candidates because we see them complain about it on Twitter and LinkedIn all the time, (laughs) but it really is a wish list. And so when you look at a job description, first of all, like actually read it because I myself have been getting into hiring and 
my hypothesis is proving to be true in that many people do not read the job description. Therefore, the bar to like stand out is really low because if you actually (laughs) read the job description and you can, you know, literally highlight or virtually highlight on your screen the bullet points on there that you think match you the most, then that is how you go into slightly customizing your resume for that role or writing a really effective cover letter or writing that email that you're going to send the hiring manager because you were able to track them down and call out your specific experience that matches some of those bullet points on that job description. But You can't do that if you only read the job title and just click apply (laughs) because it has the word product management, product manager in the job title, right? That is true. Or this quick apply button that you get on LinkedIn these days. It's just like taking all the humanity out of it. But that's interesting around the customization as well, because obviously you're doing a lot of work or you have done a lot of work around CVs. You've been doing work around portfolios. And Mm -hmm. there's always this debate around about how much to customize, you know, how much to put into a cover letter, right? how much to put into your actual CV, what to put in your portfolio, what to not. Sounds from what you're saying that you very much recommend customizing for every single job that you apply for and making sure that you're very specifically calling out what makes you special rather than tossing a, a bog standard resume over the wall that you wrote and just download and send to everyone. Is that fair? Yes, definitely. And the people that actually do this are the ones that get hired faster inside (laughs) our program. And I think a lot of people push back on this concept because their definition of customize your resume is vastly different from mine. A lot of people think, I don't have time to write a resume from the ground up all over again, right? And so one of the guiding principles that we really focus on in Career Strategy Lab is trying to get people to remember this is about creating the MVP version of cover letter, resume, presentation, etc. And so tailoring or customizing your resume, for example, could be as simple as reordering bullet points under one of your work history lines, removing bullet points that maybe don't really relate to the role, adding bullet points because you read the job description and you think, oh yeah, that thing that I did two years ago is super relevant. I'm going to add that in. Also, the at the top of your resume, your little summary, whatever you want to call it, that is an excellent thing to customize because you, let's say you are applying to a job in the finance industry. You're doing product management for some finance thing. Great. If you actually have finance experience in the past, But at the top of your resume, it doesn't say like, I'm a product manager with five years experience and two years experience working in finance. If it doesn't say that, that would be an example of how to customize that (laughs) resume. So it's little, little things like that. And concerning the cover letter, I think a lot of people push back on cover letters. Again, they think, I don't have time to write a cover letter. Here's the deal. If you just write a good baseline or template cover letter that covers 90% of what the cover letter needs to include. And then you're changing or adding or removing 10% similar in what we just did with that resume example. 
that's how you're able to send a cover letter with every application. And it could also just be an email. It doesn't have to be this formal cover letter. Then you're able to solve that problem of, oh, I don't have time to write a cover letter. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's funny though, and this is something I've had in the past as well, when you you kind of fall into a cognitive trap of your own, which is like, you just expect that everyone will know that you've sent that letter to someone else or something very similar to that letter to someone else. And it's of course, it, yeah. like there's not like a gang of people <laughs> sharing CVs backwards and forwards. So exactly. but I just think it's just a really interesting kind of cognitive bias where you kind of, you after a couple, you're like, oh no, I can't send that to someone else. They might know. Yeah, but they will know if it sounds like just business jargon and buzzwords, <laughs> right? Like oh, Sally yeah. is a team player who is passionate about changing the world through design <laughs> and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you have to make sure that it doesn't sound like that. And by tailoring it, it makes it feel more personalized, right? Like, when we work on products, think of the products you use. Like I use a lot of fitness apps and what makes them really effective is when I open my Garmin, for example, the app, and it gives me this personalized dashboard of my day and my sleep and my heart rate and this and that. And that is why I'm intrigued and compelled to keep using that. Yeah. In the same way, if you do that slight customization of the resume, cover letter, et cetera. It's, those are products. I mean, if we want to get, we could debate that, but like, if you treat it like a product, it's a lot easier. <laughs> and you're going to realize changes that you could make that you've completely overlooked by not thinking about all this as products. No, absolutely. I think it's really interesting, that idea around personalization and and also just making sure that you're even doing a little bit of A-B testing from time to time, just trying to work yes. out what things land with people. I'm also very curious, and I don't know if this is something that you advise people to do as well, but one of the things I remember reading in No Rules Rules, the Netflix book, is about how they encourage people to just kind of apply for jobs, even when they don't want one, just to make sure that they, mm. that they actually still want to work at Netflix. And my extension of that is like, sometimes it's just kind of fun to apply for jobs just to get good at applying for jobs as well. I don't know if that's something that you advocate because I guess technically you're wasting other people's time if you don't want the job, but at the same time, it can really help to sharpen your own story, your own narrative. I'm big on narratives. Yeah. Well, I think if we're going to treat our careers like products, it's helpful to be doing some research sometimes. And sure, one could argue that if you're applying to jobs and you have no intention of taking it, you're wasting people's time. But selfishly, that's a great way to do research, right? And figure out, <laughs> is your resume getting you interviews, right? What type of salary can you command? And, you know, you might actually have no intentions of working at whatever company you apply to. You might also realize, wow, this is a great opportunity. Or, yeah. wow, I'm actually very underpaid in my current job. I'm actually going to rethink my original stance of I'm just applying to this job kind of for research, you know? Yeah. And that idea of like testing, it really goes back to this whole MVP mindset that I'm trying to convey to so many people because <laughs> that ties into the way people approach the job search, which is very much a numbers game, right? 
lots of people are taught and side note, some like UX boot camps mandate this in their you'll get hired guarantees because I've read the terms and conditions. <laughs> but a lot of people play this numbers game. And my kind of counter thinking to that is you could keep playing the numbers game, but it might be better to apply to a job with a resume that maybe you don't think is perfect because the longer you keep trying to perfect your resume, whatever, it's preventing you from applying to jobs. Yeah. So by applying with this, say, MVP version, you might actually be surprised and get interviews and stuff because that extra two weeks you were going to spend tweaking your resume or presentation, chances are like those differences are so minute yeah. that it's not going to impact the grand picture of getting interviews, et cetera. Well, this is interesting because one of the things you see banded around on the internet these days is <laughs> this whole idea around, well, everything's just being automatically scanned by ATS systems these yep. days and you don't really need to write anything great. You just need to hit the certain bullet points that they expect so that you pass their automated systems. Now, I'm a strong advocate for hiring managers actually reading CVs and basically doing their job. Mm -hmm. But do you think that the threat of AI and ATSs is, is overblown? Or do you think that's a real problem for kind of gatekeeping to even get a job into in the first place? So I think it is slightly overblown. And I think it's overblown because it's an easy excuse that people can use when they're not, <laughs> when they're frustrated with the job search, right? Like, oh, like the ATS systems are so unfair or the ATS systems are biased or whatever, right? And yes, ATS systems exist and a lot of companies use them, but eventually a human is going to look at it, right? Yeah. And so you need to keep that in mind and not just flood, for example, your resume with like all these keywords and make it hard to read and everything. I think too, <laughs> sure, ATS systems exist, but guess what? I just read this stat. 85% of jobs are found or like secured through relationships. And that's from the US Department of Labor, I believe. I could be wrong, but 99% sure. Anyway. <laughs> The reason I bring that up is a lot of people really focus on platforms in their job search, meaning, okay, I have to go to LinkedIn jobs today and do quick apply on 10 jobs. And also some boot camps mandate like the number of jobs you need to apply to. So that's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> the problem here is that by focusing on platforms, you're missing the opportunity of people. So let's say, and I see this on LinkedIn all the time, a product manager or a hiring manager, or research manager will post on their LinkedIn profile, hey guys, I'm hiring for my team. Here's the role. Anyone interested? Like, let me know. That is a great example of where you need to like personally reach out to that person because now you have a real person and you're in effect able to bypass any software or AI, right? Now they might tell you, okay, go apply at this website, but 
but at least you still have a person you can follow up with and maybe send like a cover letter to, I use cover letter loosely here, right? Like a (laughs) short email to sell yourself type thing. So you have to consider both. But I think a lot of people just moan and complain about the ATS systems. And I think it's kind of lazy because sure, sometimes it can be a barrier, but equally, I see so many humans, people, hiring managers posting. It's a lot easier than people think to like bypass those systems and or at least make contact with someone on the inside. No, absolutely. I think it's really important to use your network as much as possible as well. It's something that I think is just, I mean, not just for jobs, obviously, just in general, I think networks are so important. Yeah. But we spoke before this about some of the myths that UX professionals believe about recruits and hiring managers. And I'm sure that Mm. some of those myths have been covered by some of the things we've already talked about. But is there like one mega myth that you really would want, I guess, UX professionals, but also product people and professionals in general to understand isn't true, Mm -hmm. aside from the things that we talked about already? Yeah, I think one that comes to mind that is also applicable to anyone at really any stage in their career is when you see a job description or a post that references desired years of experience, even if you don't have those number (laughs) of years of experience, doesn't mean you can't apply. Now, I will caveat that and say, if it says you need to have 10 years of experience and you have six months of experience, that's a stretch, right? Like you kind of have to (laughs) think critically about this. But I'm often asked, I'm a junior, whatever, product manager, designer, researcher, writer. I'm a junior. All the job descriptions say one to three years of experience. How do I apply if I don't have one to three years of experience? And again, I think this is a little bit of like a blame game where people just love to latch on to this kind of issue. But I have talked to a lot of hiring managers. And in this one Twitter thread I did a while ago, or discussion that became a thread, one (laughs) hiring manager chimed in and they said, I actually just hired someone who didn't have the years of experience. And I said, oh, like, say more. And they said, well, the way this person communicated their skills and experience, what they did, their thinking behind it, et cetera, it blew other candidates with like four years of experience out of the water. And so I think as much as people love to say, like, it's not fair that it's also has one to three years of experience. How do I get experience if no one will give me a job to get experience? It's kind of like the bar to stand out is really low. And I say this all the time, but it, cause it is. And if you can just <laughs> communicate what you did, why you did it, what happened, what you were thinking at an appropriate level of detail, you are going to stand out. Like I guarantee it. And I wish I could like, do a live stream and show you a lot of the portfolios and resumes I've received as a part of our hiring activities. I'm not going to do that. But like, (laughs) trust me when I say it is so disturbing and horrifying. I think that's an appropriate word. It's like, that is why I am so passionate about this business because these skills that we're teaching, it's not just about the act of making a resume. 
Like this all boils down to communication, storytelling, critical thinking. And if you can learn those at any stage of your career, it's going to help you excel once you are hired. So, I mean, I joke that we should just call this program the Communication Strategy Lab or something, but <laughs> maybe that's in two years. <laughs> yeah, one day. But excellent advice. And again, really doubles down on that idea of a narrative and being able to own the discussion rather than being dragged into someone else's conversation. Definitely. I mean, you know, like how many discussions have you been in in your own company with your own team and colleagues where you think if we were just communicating more clearly, like it's not... <laughs> Not a, we're not that far away from each other. It's just that we're not doing a good job at communicating, right? Or you have that stakeholder that pushes back on something, but then you realize, oh, the way we communicated this probably wasn't clear. You research findings are another great example of where this all comes into play. So anyway, it's all about communication. 100%, as so many things are. But speaking of communication, where can people find you after this if they want to talk about UX careers or any other type of careers, I guess, from what we said earlier? Uh, job hunting in general, or see if you can still get a kid's clothing discount? <laughs> so I no longer work warehouse sales for Oshkosh, <laughs> but gosh. But that was a, one of but my you high know a guy, right? You know a guy. I know a guy. I know a guy. But yeah, the best way to learn about me is head to my personal website, saraduty.com. And then for all things related to career, job search, resumes, interviewing, etc., that's all over at careerstrategylab.com where we have a ton of articles as well as where you can learn more about this six-month career incubator, Career Strategy Lab. There you go. You heard the incubator chat here first. <laughs> well, that's been a fantastic chat. It's obviously really grateful you could spare the time to hopefully inspire a few people to think about their job hunt differently. Uh, obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. This was awesome. And I'm glad to have riffed on some uh, marketing stuff as well. <laughs> as always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.